All right, here we go. <clears throat> You're listening to Makers Radio. I'm Leonard. I'm Tyler. And today's episode, starting a podcast. Okay, so now should we do it in British accents? <laughs> that was good. Yeah, that was probably good. I haven't found my radio voice yet. That was my. I don't know. Welcome to Makers Radio, a show hosted by one visual designer and one carpenter. This episode is an excerpt from a phone conversation between Leonard and Tyler, one living in New York City and one living in East Texas. They try to find common ground in their professions and plan how they will create a podcast, which neither of them know how to do. Any serious artist growing up? I didn't know any yeah. visual artist. Yep. Yeah, that was me too. I mean, I didn't really know that it was a job. I mean, so I knew that people did it, right? Like I knew that there were people that made money doing it, but I, th- I guess that, you know, and I mean, when I was young, young, I think my impression was more that that was like 10 people, you know, like maybe like the 10 best people in the world. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I still don't make almost any money off of painting. Um Fortunately, I've finally gotten to a place with my graphic design where I can make a living off of it. And then doing that work kind of supplements my um, like weird fine art that right. I do. So what's, tell us what you currently do. What's your job? Okay, so I work as a UI UX designer in Dumbo, Brooklyn which is kind of the new Silicon Valley of the East Coast, um, some would say. And particularly designing apps, so designing applications for mobile device, a lot of stuff for iPhones and iPads and Android devices. Um, You're liking it? Yeah, uh, yeah, I like it okay. I mean, project to project, you know, if if it's a cool project, then I get really into it and it can be fulfilling, but um doing doing client work can often just be draining. Um, yeah. If you're stuck in a project where either you don't like something about the project itself or you don't like something about the client or you don't like the members of your team that you're working in it can just be exhausting and make you hate your life yeah i mean uh i think unfortunately i think that's sort of par for the course with any sort of client design work you know uh, I, I go through the exact same set of feelings you know um i mean it's more and more my like my goals aren't really centered around making you know x amount of dollars as they are around being able to only do the jobs that I'm super psyched about and not do, you know, not take on any other design work whatsoever. Yeah, so uh, that's one thing that I've always really admired about the work that you do, Tyler, is that most of the pieces that you work on are very high-end. You, you definitely seem to go for um, quality over quantity. Yeah, yeah. I, um, I, you know, and maybe to my detriment, I'm just like a huge perfectionist. And so, 
you, you know, unfortunately, there's no way to do the lower end perfect. You know, it's like a part of it being at the lower end is that mm-hmm. you're taking intentional shortcuts, you know. So, uh, you know, I mean, I, I had to sort of pay on the front end to do that because when I first opened up my own shop, you know, I didn't have uh, very much work at all, you know, until I could sort of position myself as the the guy that only did high-end stuff, you know. So I would turn down a lot of jobs that I didn't want or that I thought were going to sort of pigeonhole me, I guess, in the market as a, you know, middle-of-the-road, price-wise person. So uh, can you just describe a typical project or, like, what what's a piece that you've worked on recently that you're proud of? Yeah, so... Um, yeah, it's kind of hard to describe a typical project, but um, because each one is unique. Yeah, they're really different, but I guess it's it's less like a lot of people think of furniture makers, and more like maybe uh, you know web designer or something. As far as the way that I come to the final piece I'm going to make, so basically my clients they'll bring me in with a piece of furniture in mind. So they need you know a dining table, let's say. Mm-hmm. Um, so then I'll typically go to their house, uh, try to talk with them and see, uh, try to hear from them what they want in a dining table. Now, I, I make a point to not ask them what style or what they want it to look like or anything like that at first. You know, I try to steer the conversation where okay. they're just sort of telling me what, what their needs are, you know. So I need to seat 10 people or I need to seat 12 people. Um, it can stay that large all the time and this is the room that it's going to go in, etc. Uh, and then, you know, I want to take a look at the furniture that they have in the rest of the house, um, and just see sort of where their tastes lie. Uh, you know, so the last dining table I did, uh, is kind of the one I've been referencing. Those clients, uh, they collect a lot of furniture, they collect, uh, French style furniture, a lot of Louis XV style furniture. Um, and they usually actually just go to France and, uh, you know, buy it and then have it shipped back through a a carrier there. Um, so, So, you know, so, so, so the piece, the piece that you made, I, I am assuming it was kind of a modern compliment. Yeah. Yeah. So that's then what I do. So like they really like Louis the 15th, uh, but I'm not, I don't really build, like period reproduction furniture. So I want to build them a piece that will fit with everything they like, but also be more contemporary and, you know, definitely a piece that's designed by me. Like I want it to feel like I I designed it, you know, and I made it. Would you say that you have a signature style or a an aesthetic? So I, I would definitely say that I have... I have some aesthetic principles and I have some things that are going to go with me from job to job. You know, some of them are really specific. Some of them are more general. As far as like a, a style that if you looked at it and could say, you know, you could identify that it was mine, um, I haven't really developed that fully. You know, a little bit on my own work, but it's it's still sort of a little further out there than a lot of my clients want right now well and especially i again um living in east texas there's more of a traditional taste 
Yeah, and the money out here is like uh, a good bit of it's like old, old money. Um, so they have more classical interests. Um, but, you know, I mean, there are some people out here certainly that are down with some more contemporary pieces. So a, a lot of the furniture that I've seen you produce seems to have um, like strong geometry, uh, yeah. clean lines, not not a lot of ornamentation. Yeah, yeah. I like to clean. I mean, one of my favorite things to do really is to take sort of Louis XV furniture and uh, clean it up. You know, a lot of the ornamentation that was done on, on not just Louis XV, but a lot of furniture, um, and this is a broad comment. This is not a true comment for, for everything, but a lot of times the style of ornamentation was there to cover up flaws, you know, or to cover up mm-hmm. uh, the way that they had to build furniture, if that makes sense. Okay. You know, just like the uh, flutes on a, a Roman column, you know, they're fluted okay. to hide the seams. Gotcha. You know, because a column is just blocks stacked on top of one another, the original columns. They're just blocks stacked on top of one another and, you know, rough shaped into a cir- you know, circular cross section. So if you stacked them all up, you'd get these weird horizontal lines that cut across all the blocks. So they started carving uh, the flutes into them. Got it. To create those vertical lines. Yeah. And the, that way, then the vertical lines are far more uh, visually overpowering. So you don't even see the horizontal lines anymore. You just see the verticals. Um, like philosophically, do you think that that's uh, a good way to approach it? To say, okay, um, the truth of this object that we produce is that it's constructed in this way but we want to create some kind of visual illusion that makes the viewer perceive it in a different way so yeah that's Uh, a really no i like that that's an interesting question um yeah i so i think that what they were doing was making the most aesthetically pleasing or the most beautiful object that they could with the tools or capability or technology that they had at the time. So, you know, uh, I don't think that there's a fair necessarily comparison that I could think of between then and now. I mean, for them, I would consider that design as having integrity, you know, because that's, that's what they had. So that's, that's a pretty ingenious workaround, you know, to create something that's more aesthetically pleasing. But now, what we see is almost the opposite. You know, we have access to the tools to do just, you know, almost anything, but you still see things that are intentionally designed to cover up, uh, you know, lower quality manufacturing or, sure, you know, a multitude of things. Okay. I mean, what about you? What are your thoughts on that? Um, I don't know. <laughs> I was hoping you could, you could uh, <laughs> tell me. Yeah, well, maybe I can create a metaphor with with UI design. So U, UI, it's just designing the the controls, like the virtual controls that you interact, that you use okay. to interact with an application. Um, maybe a relevant concept is um, this kind of new phenomenon of flat design. Have you heard about this? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I mean, if... So once, you, sure once you break down flat design for me, though, in uh, you know a couple of sentences, if you can. Sure, flat design is just a real general term to 
describe graphics that look flat. <laughs> they they embrace the flatness of a screen, of a right. flat screen display, particularly with touch devices. You have probably noticed that over the last couple of years, all the apps on your iPhone and iPad and even the um, the native graphical interface of those operating systems have become flatter and flatter. They, they basically look less like real objects and more like what they are, which is just... Right. Um, pixels. Yeah, which is just pixels, exactly. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, no, I think that's a good... That's a good enough. So you're sort of saying that the original, like making them try to look like they're floating or try to look like three-dimensional objects... Uh, yeah, exactly. That's what I was trying to get to. So, like, let's say uh, if I'm designing a button or if a designer is designing a button, um, maybe five years ago they would have tried to have it look like it was glossy and shiny on the top and that it was, like, casting a shadow uh, down to the right so that people could associate that with what they recognize as a button, like, on your remote control. Right. Um, but the truth is it's not... A physical button on your remote control all you have to do is communicate to the user that uh, touching this will perform an action and that's adequate you don't have to do all these fancy decorative effects yeah that's interesting that's an interesting comparison so how do you then on a flat screen with pixels if you're trying to go as flat as you can with the design, how do you differentiate a button from, say, you know, just a square graphic that's on that same screen? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Um, and designers have come at it different ways, especially in the last uh, two years when flat designs really exploded. Um, and at this point, there are even subgenres uh, branching out. I mean, flat design really isn't a uh, philosophy of design. It's just like kind of the general style. But okay. now at this point, um, Google has tried to actually formalize their uh, visual design philosophy into what's called material design. And then you have Apple, which has tried to create their own slightly different version of flat interaction. And then what else is there? There's like Microsoft. Microsoft? Yeah, Microsoft has tried to come up with uh, metro design is what they're calling it. And they, they all have like slightly different principles. Um, right. And so, sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. Like one great example that I've, I mean, I wasn't the first one to point this out, but um, if you look at your iPhone's keyboard, I don't know if you're an iPhone user. Yeah. But, but the shift key, it's like it, terribly designed. You can never tell when it's depressed and when it's not. Right. Because they no, tried to make that. it, yeah, I mean, they just tried to make it so minimalist and just for the sake of making it like look cool and modern and flat, really, they took away some of that uh, visual information. Whereas, yeah. I mean, if it, if it did look like, like a physical button and when it was activated, then it looked like a depressed physical button. Yeah. Or just and that would be a very, a very direct communication right it's like they're trying to uh stray too far or try to like it's almost like they're trying to rebel against that that three-dimensional design 
Yeah, but I mean, as it is, so so check out the stupid shift button on your iPhone, uh, listeners, um, and see if you can tell when it's activated or not. It always gets me. I, I mean, I, I do this for a living, and I'm perpetually confused by it. Yeah, I mean, like, also, and there may be, I don't know, there may be a way around this, and I just haven't thought about it deeply enough till now, but I get mad every time I'm entering a password uh, with my iPhone, you know, because there are capitals and lowercase, but the keyboard, uh, the keys are displayed in uh, as capital, you know, uppercase letters, all the time. Yeah, yeah. Even if even if you're tap, uh, typing in lowercase. Yep. That's exactly. True. Yeah, it's infuriating. So I'm like, and so you couple that with the bad shift key, and I'm like, wait. So <laughs> is yeah, the letter yeah. that it, was that a capital I just put in or not a capital? Exactly. So, uh, yeah. Um, you know, now with the newest. I mean, this is kind of getting into geek land but with the newest uh ios release what ios 8 and up um (laughs) you can you can install uh like third-party keyboards that's right yeah so there are some keyboards who have improved on the native design uh i don't know a lot of them that i've tried are buggy in weird ways though yeah anyway we don't have to keep talking about keyboards for the whole show no, that's an interesting analogy, though. I did, I did like that. I mean, I hadn't thought about it necessarily in the way that you described it, so I like that. And so, I mean, that's a lot of what we're trying to explore, I think, in this podcast in general uh, and on the website, is that as our culture becomes more aware of design, because we're definitely making a trend towards popular culture, just becoming more aware of design, you know, every day, every year... And so as we do that, we see the two sort of separate worlds of design, you know, the, the design of physical objects and the design of, I don't know, non digital or non-physical objects. Yeah. You see those two worlds sort of coming closer and closer together. And, uh, you know, I mean, Google is doing some work on, you know, the so-called Internet of Things. Uh, you take that and also our cult- there's this growing movement of makers, you know, this maker movement, people that are trying to use both simultaneously using digital files to actually create uh, physical three-dimensional objects. Uh, mm-hmm. And so as these things are becoming more popular, we want to take a step back and try to look at what are some of the commonalities involved uh, both with the disciplines, with the mediums, but also with the people, you know, what drives uh, different people to different mediums and what do those people have in common with one another? So, and I was, I was trying to think like, where, where, where do we have to draw the line though? Um, I mean, would it be appropriate to release a Maker's Radio episode about a computer programmer or would it be appropriate to release an episode about a dance choreographer? Right. Yeah. I mean, so I would personally be interested in both of those things, I think, you know? Yeah. So, so maybe that, that might become a recurring theme on this show. Um, the, the, the blurring line between, uh, the physical and the digital and, um, how to approach design and making in this time in those circumstances yeah and how to like how to draw inspiration i mean not just so how to learn new skills right i mean if you're going to make physical products it's time you started learning how to make those physical products using digital technology you know but i I think that we also beyond that we have something to learn from each other you know like i straight up want to rob ideas you know from 
people that design specifically in the digital world. You know, so if I can straight up steal an idea from you and then translate that into a physical yeah. product, you know, you've crossed that line from that's no longer like a, a robbed idea. It's a different reinterpretation of that. And that's how we sort of move forward in design a lot of times. There you go. And vice versa. So like uh, when I'm when I'm creating uh, a back button, just how can I use good design principles from carpentry to create this this symbol? Yeah. Yeah. I like Perhaps. That. Yeah. I mean, because, you know, I mean, a lot of uh, what I do is adding sort of definition or shape to something that almost isn't there. You know, I mean, if you make a, just for instance, a large tabletop, those large tabletops are going to look profoundly different if there's like a 45 degree chamfer. So you just cut a 16th of an inch off of the edges to make it go from a sharp edge to a flat chamfered edge. You do that and that table is going to look different, you know, just from a tiny change. And that's, you know, in the graphical world, a tiny change like that makes a huge difference as well. You have been listening to Maker's Radio. Find out more at makersradio.org or by visiting the Maker's Radio Facebook page. Special thanks to Modern Wonder for providing the music. You can hear more music by Modern Wonder by going to soundcloud.com and searching for Modern Wonder.